2: Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and you can think of me as your friendly guide to the English language. We talk about writing, history, rules, and cool stuff. Today, we'll talk about researchers who are analyzing people's writing to figure out how they feel, and then we'll talk about the word schnoz. This next segment is by Dana McKenzie and originally appeared in Knowable magazine. Did 2020 seem like the worst year ever to you? While such a description may seem hopelessly subjective, according to one measure, it's true. That yardstick is the Hedonometer, a computerized way of assessing both our happiness and our despair. It runs day in, day out on computers at the University of Vermont, where it scrapes some 50 million tweets per day off Twitter and then gives a quick and dirty read of the public's mood. According to the Hedonometer, 2020 was by far the most horrible year since it began keeping track in 2008. It's ticked back up again in 2021. We're a little happier, at least collectively on Twitter, than we were in 2020, but this year is no basket of puppies and rainbows either. The Hedonometer is a relatively recent incarnation of a task computer scientists have been working on for more than 50 years using computers to assess words' emotional tone. To build the hedonometer, UVM computer scientist Chris Dansforth had to teach a machine to understand the emotions behind those tweets. No human could possibly read them all. This process, called sentiment analysis, has made major advances in recent years and is finding more and more uses. In addition to taking Twitter users' emotional temperature, researchers are employing sentiment analysis to gauge people's perceptions of climate change and to test conventional wisdom such as in music whether a minor chord is sadder than a major chord and by how much. Businesses who covet information about customers' feelings are harnessing sentiment analysis to assess reviews on platforms like Yelp. Some are using it to measure employees' moods on internal social networks at work. And the technique might also have medical applications, such as identifying depressed people in need of help. Sentiment analysis is allowing researchers to examine a deluge of data that was previously time-consuming and difficult to collect, let alone study, says Danforth. He said, quote, In social sciences, we tend to measure things that are easy, like gross domestic product. Happiness is an important thing that's hard to measure, unquote. You might think the first step in sentiment analysis would be teaching the computer to understand what humans are saying. But that's one thing that computer scientists can't do. Understanding language is one of the most notoriously difficult problems in artificial intelligence. Yet there are abundant clues to the emotions behind a written text, which computers can recognize even without understanding the meaning of the words. The earliest approach to sentiment analysis is word-counting. The idea is simple enough—count the number of positive words and subtract the number of negative words. And an even better measure can be obtained by weighting words. Excellent, for example, conveys a stronger sentiment than good. These weights are typically assigned by human experts and are part of creating the word-to-emotion dictionaries called lexicons that sentiment analyses often use. But word counting has inherent problems. One is that it ignores word order, treating a sentence as a sort of word stew. And word counting can miss context-specific cues. Consider this product review. I'm so happy that my iPhone is nothing like my old ugly droid. The sentence has three negative words—nothing, old, and ugly—and only one positive—happy. While a human recognizes immediately that old and ugly refer to a different phone, to the computer, it looks negative. And comparisons prevent additional difficulties. What does nothing like mean? Does it mean the speaker is not comparing the iPhone with the Android? The English language can be so confusing. To address such issues, computer scientists have increasingly turned to more sophisticated approaches that take humans out of the loop entirely. They're using machine learning algorithms that teach a computer program to recognize patterns, such as meaningful relationships between words. For example, the computer can learn that pairs of words such as bank and river often occur together. These associations can give clues to meaning or to sentiment if bank and money are in the same sentence, it's probably a different kind of bank. A major step in such methods came in 2013 when Thomas Mikulov of Google Brain applied machine learning to construct a tool called word embeddings. These convert each word into a list of 50 to 300 numbers called a vector. The numbers are like a fingerprint that describes a word, and particularly the other words it tends to hang out with. To obtain these descriptors, Mikhailov's program looked at millions of words in newspaper articles and tried to predict the next word of text given the previous words. Mikhailov's embeddings recognize synonyms. Words like money and cash have very similar vectors. More subtly, word embeddings capture elementary analogies—that king is to queen as boy is to girl, for example—even though it can't define those words. A remarkable feat given that such analogies were part of how SAT exams assess performance. Mikhailov's word embeddings were generated by what's called a neural network with one hidden layer. Neural networks, which are loosely modeled on the human brain, have enabled stunning advances in machine learning, including AlphaGo, which learned to play the game of Go better than the world champion. Mikolov's network was a deliberately shallower network, so it could be useful for a variety of tasks such as translation and topic analysis. Deeper neural networks with more layers of cortex can extract even more information about a word's sentiment in the context of a particular sentence or document. A common reference task is for the computer to read a movie review on the Internet Movie Database and predict whether the reviewer gave it a thumbs-up or a thumbs-down. The earliest lexicon methods achieved about 74% accuracy, and the most sophisticated ones got up to 87%. The very first neural nets in 2011 scored 89%. Today, they perform with upwards of 94% accuracy, approaching that of a human. Humor and sarcasm remain the big stumbling blocks because the written words may literally express the opposite of the intended sentiment. Despite the benefits of neural networks, lexicon-based methods are still popular. The hedonometer, for example, uses a lexicon, and Danforth has no intention to change it. While neural networks may be more accurate for some problems, they come at a cost. The training period alone is one of the most computationally intensive tasks you can ask a computer to do. Quote, basically you're limited by how much electricity you have, says the Wharton School's Robert Stein, who covers the evolution of sentiment analysis in the 2019 Annual Review of Statistics in its application. He said, quote, how much electricity did Google use to train AlphaGo? The joke I heard was enough to boil the ocean, unquote. In addition to the electricity needs, neural nets require expensive hardware and technical expertise. And there's a lack of transparency because the computer is figuring out how to tackle the task rather than following a programmer's explicit instructions. Quote, it's easier to fix errors with a lexicon, unquote, says Bing Liu of the University of Illinois at Chicago, one of the pioneers of sentiment analysis. While sentiment analysis often falls under the purview of computer scientists, it has deep roots in psychology. In 1962, Harvard psychologist Philip Stone developed the General Inquirer, the first computerized general-purpose text analysis program for use in psychology. In the 1990s, social psychologist James Pennebaker developed an early program for sentiment analysis called the Linguistic Inquiry and Word Count as a view into people's psychological worlds. These earlier assessments revealed and confirmed patterns that experts had long observed. Patients diagnosed with depression had distinct writing styles, such as using pronouns I and me more often. They used more words with negative affect and sometimes more death-related words. Researchers are now probing mental health's expression in speech and writing by analyzing social media posts. Danforth and Harvard psychologist Andrew Reese, for example, analyzed the Twitter posts of people with formal diagnoses of depression or post traumatic stress disorder that were written prior to the diagnosis, with consent of participants. Signs of depression begin to appear as many as nine months earlier. And Facebook has an algorithm to detect users who seem to be at risk of suicide. Human experts review the cases and, if warranted, send the users prompts or helpline numbers. Yet, social network data is still a long way from being used in patient care. Privacy issues are of obvious concern. Plus, there's still work to be done to show how useful these analyses are. Many studies assessing mental health fail to define their terms properly or don't provide enough information to replicate the results, says Stevie Chancellor, an expert in human-centered computing at Northwestern University and co-author of a recent review of 75 such studies. But she still believes that sentiment analysis could be useful for clinics, for example when triaging a new patient. And even without personal data, sentiment analysis can identify trends such as the general stress level of college students during a pandemic or the types of social media interactions that trigger relapses among people with eating disorders. Sentiment analysis is also addressing more lighthearted questions such as weather's effect on mood— In 2016, Nick Obradovich, now at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development in Berlin, analyzed some 2 billion posts from Facebook and 1 billion posts from Twitter. An inch of rain lowered people's expressed happiness by about 1 percent. Below freezing temperatures lowered it about twice that amount. In a follow-up and more disheartening study, Obradovich and colleagues looked to Twitter to understand feelings about climate change. They found that after about five years of increased heat, Twitter users' sense of normal changed, and they no longer tweeted about a heat wave. Nevertheless, user sense of well-being was still affected, the data show. Quote, it's like boiling a frog, Obradovich says. That was one of the more troubling empirical findings of any paper I've ever done. Unquote. Monday's reputation as the worst day of the week was also ripe for investigation. Although Monday is the weekday name that elicits the most negative reactions, Tuesday was actually the day when people were saddest, an early analysis of tweets by Dan Forth's Hidometer found. Friday and Saturday, of course, were the happiest days. But the weekly pattern changed after the 2016 U.S. presidential election. While there's probably still a weekly signal, quote, superimposed on it are events that capture our attention and are talked about more than the basics of life, unquote, says Danforth. Translation on Twitter, politics never stops. Quote, Any day of the week can be the saddest, unquote, he says. Another truism put to the test is that in music, major chords are perceived as happier than minor chords. Yong an an expert in computational social science at Indiana University, tested this notion by analyzing the sentiment of lyrics that accompanied each chord of 123,000 songs. Major chords indeed were associated with happier words—6.3 compared with 6.2 for minor chords, on a 1 to 9 scale. Although the difference looks small, it's about half the difference in sentiment between Christmas and a normal weekday on the hedonometer. On also compared genres and found that 1960s rock was the happiest and heavy metal was the most negative. The business world is also taking up the tool. Sentiment analysis is becoming widely used by companies, but many don't talk about it, so precisely gauging its popularity is hard. Everyone is doing it. Microsoft, Google, Amazon, everyone. Some of them have multiple research groups, Lou says. One readily accessible measure of interest is the sheer number of commercial and academic sentiment analysis software programs that are publicly available. A 2018 benchmark comparison detailed 28 such programs. Some companies use sentiment analysis to understand what their customers are saying on social media. As a possible apocryphal example, Expedia Canada ran a marketing campaign in 2013 that went viral in the wrong way because people hated the screechy background violin music. Expedia quickly replaced the annoying commercial with new videos that made fun of the old one. For example, they invited a disgruntled Twitter user to smash the violin. It's frequently claimed that Expedia was alerted to the social media backlash by sentiment analysis. While this is hard to confirm, it's certainly the sort of thing that sentiment analysis could do. Other companies use sentiment analysis to keep track of employee satisfaction, say by monitoring intracompany social networks. IBM, for example, developed a program called Social Pulse that monitored the company's intranet to see what employees were complaining about. For privacy reasons, the software only looked at posts that were shared with the entire company. Even so, this trend bothers Danforth, who says, quote, My concern would be the privacy of the employees not being commensurate with the bottom line of the company. It's an ethically sketchy thing to be doing, unquote. It's likely that ethics will continue to be an issue as sentiment analysis becomes more common and companies, mental health professionals, in any other field considering its use should keep in mind that while sentiment analysis is endlessly promising, delivering on that promise can still be fraught. The mathematics that underlie the analysis is the easy part. The hard part is understanding humans, as Liu says, quote, we don't even understand what is understanding, unquote. That segment was written by Dana McKenzie, a freelance writer based in Santa Cruz, California. His recent book, The Book of Why, The New Science of Cause and Effect, co-authored with Judea Pearl, was named one of the top science books of 2018 by Science Friday. This segment originally appeared online at knowablemagazine.org. Published by Annual Reviews, Knowable seeks to make scientific knowledge accessible to all. Check out the Knowable podcast, which explores the history of ideas in science, and sign up for their award-winning newsletter at knowablemagazine.org. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted with the finest materials for irresistible comfort every single night. Now save up to $800 on select adjustable mattress sets only at stearnsandfoster.com. Lesser savings may apply. For a very limited time, Grammar Girl listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Is it rosettastone.com slash grammar? That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash grammar today. Next, I have a question about a possible familact. Hi, Grammar Girl.
1: I have a family lexicon question. Um, When I was a young child, I would often use the word schnoz to describe my dad's nose. And my dad has a famously massive nose. And my mom and dad and the three of us use the word schnoz all the time in lieu of the word nose. And I thought it's what everybody said, and I thought it's what my family said, and was a normal word that everyone uses. It turns out in my 20s, my mom mentioned that nobody really uses that word. And in fact, in my own family, my mom and dad didn't use that word till I, as a young child, started throwing out the word schnoz as a synonym for a gargantuan nose. So, can you talk to me about? the word schnoz and where it comes from. Did I pick this up from a 1980s TV show that my parents didn't know about? How does a three-year-old, four-year-old kid um, find this fabulous specific word um, that fits so well in her family but is not widely used? Thanks so much, Grandma Girl. Love your podcast.
2: Thanks for the question. My first reaction is that my family uses schnoz for nose, too, so I'm not sure it's as rare as your mom thinks. And it's a good bet that if your family didn't know the word before, you picked it up from a children's TV show in the 80s. There was an episode of the Muppet Babies television series called Beauty and the Schnoz that aired in 1988, And the word also showed up in the TV show Alf, which ran in the late 1980s. Remember him? He was another Muppet like character, an alien from outer space who had a particularly big nose or snout. But the word is much older than the 1980s. The Oxford English Dictionary has it going all the way back to 1927, when Variety magazine referred to Lou Clayton, Eddie Jackson, and Jimmy Durante as Schnaz, Schnaz, and Schnazola. It probably comes from the Yiddish word for snout, schnoitz, and EnemOnline points out that this is also related to the German word for snout, schnauze, which is where the schnauzer dog gets its name. Schnauzer literally means growler, which comes from the verb schnauzer, which is, of course, related to schnauze. I guess because the growling sound an animal makes comes from its snout? Since schnoz isn't exactly a formal word in English, the spelling varies. Edom Online and the Oxford English Dictionary spell it with two Zs on the end, but the one Z version is more popular in results from a Google Books search. A Google Books search can also give us a rough idea of how popular the word is overall. At least in published books, it's about as popular as using the term piehole to refer to your mouth— and far less popular than using noggin to refer to your head or peepers to refer to your eyes. Thanks again for the question. If you want to call with the story of your act, a word your family and only your family uses, you can leave a voicemail at 833214-GIRL, and I might play it on the show. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find articles that go with each podcast segment at my website, quickanddirtytips.com. Thanks to my audio engineer, Nathan Sams and my editor, Adam Cecil. Our operations and editorial manager is Michelle Margulis, and our assistant manager is Emily Miller. Our marketing and publicity assistant is Davina Tomlin. That's all. Thanks for listening. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted with the finest materials for irresistible comfort every single night. Now save up to $800 on select adjustable mattress sets only at sternsandfoster.com. Lesser savings may apply.